0: hard for me to fathom that we come to another year. This is uh, the last sermon I get to preach in 2016. When we return, it'll be 2017, and I will have completed 14 years here at Spruce Creek, and it is a tremendous joy and privilege to be your pastor and have the—I'm actually humbled every time I seriously think about having the honor of being able to proclaim the mystery of Christ and to herald this good news that in the midst we don't deny our suffering. I love that hymn, that song, that was just led for us in worship because it's so honest and so real about the suffering of life. But I just ponder on that words that God is not dead, nor does he sleep. Our help is in the name of the Lord. And as we think of why Jesus came, why was he born? Oftentimes, you might have heard, I may have even said it, that Jesus was the only man born to die. And there's a kernel of truth in that. But as we're going to look at this morning, Jesus was actually a man, God in the flesh, who was born to be king. And his kingship and his lordship was achieved through the path of suffering and death which eventually led to resurrection and he's very much alive he very much brings hope even in the midst of this is what we mean oftentimes when we talk about that already and not yet in the midst of suffering of disease and cancer and wars and injustice and all the things that we fight and hopefully stand against and pray against there is hope that there will come a day When he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, there'll be no more mourning or crying or death or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. And as Jesus himself proclaimed to the evangelist John at the end of history that's recorded for us in the book of Revelation, he says, behold, I am making all things new. So I look forward to celebrating the new year with you all. One quick thing, just kind of in the way of announcement, is that uh, with my not being here next week, we will celebrate the Lord's Supper two weeks from now, January 8th. So just kind of as you prepare your hearts and prepare your lives, just uh, to note that we will be doing that. And to close out our year preaching this year, I'd invite you to turn to Paul's letter to the Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. We are looking at, I think, one of the great poems of the New Testament recorded by the Apostle Paul while he was in prison, indicating the lordship, the preeminence, the centrality, the supremacy of this babe who was born to be king. As we've been looking at the unfolding mystery, what we have this morning is the mystery fulfilled, the culmination, the crescendo of the mystery, so to speak, in the lordship and the kingship of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? We ask, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, soften our hearts, and give us the Holy Spirit to apply and to mediate the presence of Christ to our lives this morning. We are dependent upon you for all things that we do, for all things to even read your word, to even understand your word. We are dependent upon you to be our teacher. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now hear the word of the Lord, Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him, This is God's word. You have the theme of this, kind of where Paul is going in this poem, in verse 18, when he says he is the head of the body of the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Here's the purpose of this, that in everything he might be preeminent. That's why I said Jesus wasn't born to die. Jesus was born to be king. Jesus was born to be ultimate Lord. Lord. To be ruler and the one who reigns over all things. That path took him through death and not any ordinary death, but death on a cross. Now why is Paul writing this letter? Let me give you a little background, put it in a little bit of context before we dive into the teaching. His purpose is he's got a young church, he's got a church that has recently been planted, is growing and developed, and false teaching had come into the church. False teaching that wanted to threaten, that wanted to basically diminish, that wanted to diminish the supremacy, the preeminence, the centrality of Jesus Christ. I find it very interesting, how did Paul go about correcting this false teaching? He could have taken what I could call a negative approach, many do it today, You know, he could have said, here's the false teaching. Here's what we're against. He could have been what I like to call mean Paul. You know, maybe have a gnarly growl on his face and say, we're against all those Gnostic types. You know, he could have put a big word out there, a word we don't really understand, and said, yeah, I'm going to be known for what I'm against. That wasn't his style. That wasn't his approach. That wasn't his methodology. Nor should it be our methodology today in how we approach the beauty of the good news of Jesus. No, what Paul did was he was instead, what am I for? What am I going to promote? What am I willing to be in prison for? What am I willing to go to the death if I have to, to be for? And you know what he was for? He was for the preeminence and the centrality Of Jesus Christ. Part of me feels like I could stop right there and go, that's what we should be for. There's your application. Let's go enjoy Christmas dinner. That'd be a short sermon, wouldn't it? But instead, I'll give you three points. How did Paul go about promoting and being an apostle for, and in a sense, here's the application. I want us, as we go into 2017, thinking, how can we be a church for the centrality of Christ, and how can we be individual Christians that are for the preeminence and centrality of Christ? See, our goal is not to be against other denominations. Our goal is not to be against other persuasions, other political... our goal is to be for Jesus Christ and his kingdom. I think I'm quoting this correctly. When Jesus' own words were, seek first, The kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, whatever all these things are, whatever we need, will be added unto you. How does Paul go about doing it? Simple outline. Who is Jesus? What does Jesus do and why does he do it? Who he is, he's the supreme owner of all things. The text tells us all things were created through him and for him. What does he do? He exercises supreme power. It is in him that all things hold together. And why does he do it? For the purpose of supreme preeminence, that in everything he might be preeminent. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us that the King of kings and Lord of lords would come and live with his covenant people, his family. I can't help but think Christmas is so much about family. What a joy and privilege it is to be able to have Christmas morning on a Sunday where we could celebrate it with our family. I want you to have fun with your families this afternoon and enjoy Christmas dinner and all that. But there is something rich, there's something wonderful about being able to come with the covenant family of God. Joined by Jesus Christ, our head. He is the head of the body, the church, this text tells us. So we're joined to our head and we're joining with him to come let us adore him. First, who is Jesus? He is the supreme owner. All things were created through him and for him. Look with me at verse 16. Verse 16 says, for by him all things were created. Things in earth, things in heaven, excuse me, and on earth, visible and and invisible, whether thrones or powers, dominions, rulers, authority. Can you be any more comprehensive than that, by the way? Can you tell Paul's getting a little excited in the poetry here? All things were created through him and for him. See, this leads us to a key question that we need to ask, and it's a key question that we're going to ask, especially as we go into our ministry in 2017. See, when Paul is taking what I call this positive approach, what does it mean to be a Christian or a believer for Jesus Christ and his kingdom? He's doing it because of how he views the Christian life, how he views discipleship, and even more fundamentally, how he views we were built as human beings. His view of human nature, his view of humanity. And the key question is, what is it that you love. See, why does Paul approach things like this? He approached things because he's orienting our hearts in a certain direction. He's saying, we were built, we were designed to love. Andrew has just finished, did you finish that book? I think you finished that book. Almost finished that book, and he got me reading it. It's a book that I'm going to promote big time in 2017. It's by an author by the name of James Smith, And the book is called You Are What You Love. Now oftentimes I'll quote authors and I'll quote writers and I'll be careful in what I recommend, but this one I definitely recommend to you. It's a tremendous book about discipleship and worship. The premise and the heart of the book is that we were built by God to be worshiping creatures. You are what you love means everything is oriented around what you desire. And he orients his book around the church father, Augustine, who Augustine said in the beginning of his, in a sense, spiritual autobiography, The Confessions, Augustine says, You have made us for yourself, and our heart is restless until it rests in you. See, look at the text here. The text here says, For by Christ all things, comprehensively, were made. And all things were created through or by Christ and for Christ. We were built, we were designed, we were created by our divine owner and for our divine owner. And that's what Augustine and that's what James Smith is getting at when he quotes Augustine, says, you have made us for yourself and our heart is restless until it rests in you. See, the claim and conviction behind this is that human beings are made for God. Not just to be containers, as he puts it, of ideas, but we were made that our hearts, as the epicenter, he calls it, of our being, consisting of our minds, our wills, our affections, our emotions, all of us, we're designed to be in the direction of loving supremely Jesus above all things. Listen to how Smith puts it. He says, to be human is to be on the move. Pursuing something. Going after something. I love this line. He says, we are like existential sharks. We have to move to live. We are not just static containers for ideas. We are dynamic Creatures directed towards some end. In philosophy, we have a shorthand term for this. Something that is oriented toward an end or tell us what is called a goal, is delivered at or described as teleological. Augustine recognizes that human beings are teleological creatures. What he means by that is that everything we do is aimed at a purpose. You are what you love and you are what you desire. The chief question is, what is it you desire? What is it you love? The text here is telling us that Jesus Christ is to be the telos, the goal, the end of our lives. Why? Because he is sufficient and he is the supreme owner of all of life. The passage is teaching us if Jesus is the supreme Lord of all, on whom all other heavenly powers depend, everything depends, then he is sufficient for our lives. He's enough to meet our needs. He's enough to comfort us. He's enough to challenge us. He's enough to satisfy us. He's enough to be our supreme pleasure. He is enough for us body and soul. The passage is teaching us that the entire created order, the entire cosmos, owes its existence to Christ. The whole created order is right now being sustained by him. Who he is, he's the supreme owner of all things. What does he do? He's the supreme power. In him all things hold together. Look with me at verse 17. Verse 17 says, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, this proceeds from the first point. Here's here's the point. Since we were built for him, we were designed to worship him. Our chief desire was to be for him. What this is saying is when our chief desire is moving towards him, all things hold together. The flip side is outside of the lordship of Christ, Outside of the kingship of Christ, all things disintegrate. All things fall apart. Let me repeat an illustration Tim Keller gives that I think sums it up very well. Tim Keller likes to say, he says, take a look at the fact. Here we are illustrating the fact that everything falls apart. He says, for example, if you were to cook a chicken and take it out of the oven and let it sit for a few minutes because it's too hot to eat it immediately begins to cool off. Why? Because it's losing energy. In a sense, it's beginning to fall apart. Now, if you just let it cool off for a few minutes and go ahead and eat it, no problem. If you leave it out a few hours, you may not get food poisoning yet, but it begins to shrink. Maybe not taste as good, maybe dry out a little bit. Why? Because it's beginning to fall apart leave it out more than a few hours, leave it out for a few days, and now it's a health hazard. Why? It's falling apart. The point is, everything left naturally to itself is beginning to lose energy and fall apart. Dr. Keller says, he says, when you live apart from his kingship, Apart from his lordship. There's a reason he said, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Outside, coming under his lordship and his kingship, you experience disintegration. Yeah, your circumstances may not fall apart. But what happens? Internally, you experience disintegration with issues like anxiety, tension, fear, You know, it's one of the reasons I love the passage Andrew chose from the first chapter of Luke from Zechariah's Benedictus, when it gets at the heart of the implication of the gospel, because of the love of Jesus Christ, the lordship of Jesus Christ. What does it enable us to do? It enables us to serve, and serve is the result of worshiping. You always serve what you worship. You always worship what you love, and you serve— and the gospel, the good news of Jesus, because you were so unequivocally, unconditionally, and beautifully loved by Jesus, enables you to serve him without fear. See, I think one of the things we have to be more and more convinced of in our sanctification in our Christian life is of the goodness of Jesus. I think so often we hear something like, come under the lordship of Christ, and I think internally there's a little bit of a <clears throat> tension, a little bit of kind of a, uh-oh, Will I be really happy if I give my all to him? Wait a second. If I give him full control, what might he require me to do? If I fully yield to this thing called grace, that means he could ask anything of me. And wait a second. Deep down, if I looked at my convictions, if I looked at my beliefs and really what they are, you know what? I think I do a better job of taking charge of my life than he does. I think practically speaking, I know what's best for me, and I'm going to go with it. to really, see, to believe in grace, to let him be king of the life. You have to believe that that leads to, that he knows how he built us. See, the first point, he designed us. Our hearts are restless till they find their rest in him, leads us to yield to him, to surrender to him, truly believing we find our rest, we find our freedom, we find our humanity. Being a true human being. What you were built and designed to be in him. And outside of him, all things fall apart. Do you believe that? How did he accomplish that? How did he do that? That leads to why he did it. We looked at who he is. We looked at what he did. Now why did he do it? Verse 20 says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Why did he do it? To reconcile to himself all things. Now that means something, that all things, notice what the text says, whether on earth or in heaven, somehow salvation, somehow Christmas, somehow the Christian life is a little bigger, I think, according to that, than just God and my soul. Christianity, the gospel, salvation is bigger than just Jesus and me, Jesus and the individual. Do you see what God is up to here? He is up to, through Christ, reconciling all things to himself. See, God's vision, God's will is to bring together the life of heaven, which think about the life of heaven right now. The life of heaven, which is basically God's control center. Where God is running and ruling all things. It's perfect. And earth is imperfect. And so as a result, they're disunited in some sense. And what is God's will? God's will is to bring back together, to unite, to bring to union the life of heaven with the life of earth. That's one of the reasons we recite the Lord's Prayer every Sunday. It's not just ritual. It's not just going through rote. It is describing our vision for the Christian life, which is the will of God being done on earth as it is in heaven. It is the life of heaven coming down to earth and colonizing earth. Because what Jesus Christ did was to begin the work of reconciling all things to himself. And how did he do it? It says, through the shed blood on the cross. Through the cross. Through, in a sense, and think about that. I always say Christmas does lead to Good Friday. Think about that Good Friday in the description of the cross that you get from the narratives of the gospel. So, for example, Matthew's description of it, when he talks about the cross, and before Jesus' cry of dereliction, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says what? Darkness came over the face of the earth. That word darkness is very purposely chosen by Matthew because it alludes to something. Remember I said the New Testament will always be hearkening back to the Old Testament. And the word darkness harkens back to Genesis chapter 1 and creation. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void and darkness. Which doesn't just mean kind of blackness or darkness and stuff. It means uncreation. It means turmoil. It means utter chaos. It means a sense of formlessness. Of lifelessness. And when God spoke. And brought light. And formed the earth. And filled the earth. What he was doing was being, bringing creation out of the darkness. Forming and filling it. What was Jesus doing on the cross? How did he go about reconciling all things? By in a sense eradicating The old creation, so he could do what? Bring forth a new creation. Notice one term that is used twice in this passage. See, what is the cross? Darkness comes over the face of the earth. Uncreation, so to speak. Why? So that, as it says both in verse 15 and verse 18, Jesus could be the firstborn. Verse 15, the firstborn of all creation Verse 18, the firstborn from the dead. Jesus was born to be king through the path of the cross, through the path of uncreation, to lead to new creation. A new world. Christmas is the hope of the world because it's a new world being born. That's why that song was so appropriate. God is not dead, He never sleeps. Because Jesus Christ is the firstborn from all creation. He's the head of the body, the church, the firstborn from the dead. And in the context, yes, the old creation is still here. We still experience disease and death and injustice. But new creation has come. And new creation is being more and more implemented through the life of the church. As we love each other, As we love God, as we love our world, as we stand for justice, as we bring hope, as we become God's instruments or agents of reconciliation in the world, Jesus Christ, the firstborn of all creation and the firstborn from the dead, is implementing his new creation, his new world through the church. It's already begun, it's not yet finished. For all we know, it's got a long way to go. But what is he doing now? He's creating lovers. He designed lovers, he's creating lovers who will supremely, above all things, dedicate their life to loving him, loving one another, and loving the world. I don't know about you, but I want to sign up for a vision like that. Do you want to be a part of a vision for, like that? That's what Christmas is all about. That's what New Year's is all about. That's what 2017 is moving towards, even in the midst of everything we go through. And I'm not denying the characteristics, if you would, of the old world order. Mourning, crying, death, and pain. But do know there's a reason the apostle said in 1 Corinthians 15, thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he didn't close off that chapter there. Do you know what he said after that? He says, therefore, stand firm, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work, no matter what it is you're doing, is not in vain. You know why it's not in vain? Because God, the designer, the architect, the builder of this thing called the kingdom of God is using whatever efforts we offer in his name, under his lordship, to weave together a new creation. May 2017 be a year where we at Spruce Creek abound in being used by God as his instruments, as he is reconciling all things to himself through the blood of the cross and the victory of the resurrection. May we work, knowing our labor is not in vain, to implement that new creation. Father, thank you for the kingship and the lordship of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the promise of the gospel that through Jesus you are reconciling to yourself all things, whether in heaven or on earth, through the blood of the cross. Lord, I pray that we would truly sign up, yield ourselves to this vision. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.